Welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and I'm very happy to be joined today by Brenda Danilovitz, Chief Curator at the Joseph and Ani Albers Foundation, and a contributing author to a brand new book on Ani Albers. The book is called Ani Albers, and it accompanies an exhibition that opened this past June at the K20 Museum in Dusseldorf, Germany. It closed there September 9th and is opening this month, October 2018, at the Tate Modern in London and will be on view there until January 27th, 2019. Brenda, thank you for coming down. Thank you, Jessica. It's my pleasure. And congratulations on the book to you and all of your other co-authors. It's beautiful. It's important. Um, I think there's widespread agreement already that it's going to bring a new and overdue level of visibility to Ani Albers and her work and her life. Um, Since many of us, including me, aren't going to have the opportunity to see the exhibition in person, and I understand you were able to go to Germany this summer for that, can you talk to us a little bit about the exhibition itself and and what it's like to be there? Sure. Um, So I'll, I'll actually give the aim of the exhibition in the words of Frances Morris, who's the director of Tate Modern. And uh, in her catalogue, in her introduction to the book, she says, the aim of the exhibition is to show the important role Annie Albers played within the development of modernism in 20th century art. Um, That's quite a big, you know, assignment to take on. And, uh, but the show does it really beautifully. Uh, it's been very intelligently organized to not only show different aspects and phases of Albers's work, but also to show how these uh, changes and transitions in her art are actually integrated and form a kind of a whole that uh, really as- asserts her position in what we call uh, modernism, uh, as it's widely known. There's a um, a lovely sentence in the essay in the book by Brioni Fair. She writes, Ani Albers reconfigured the art of weaving as the meeting of pictorial abstraction, technology, and architecture, and she did so by locating a modern aesthetic in relation to an ancient and a contemporary global culture. I feel like that really kind of gets at some of the the way that the book and the exhibition situates Ani within modernism. Yes, exactly. And um, I think what we need to understand about Ani Albers is that she had a she was caught by this idea of weaving as having been one of the earliest perhaps the earliest form of making of art making and so she saw it as this really fundamental uh foundation of all art and yet at the same time she didn't have a historicist view of it she could bring that idea of its primacy into action with 
her present day situation and um, with a kind of understanding that this didn't have anything to do with periods or periodization or really historicism, but it had to do with a kind of uh, an importance of making and, dare I say it, a technology that had existed in earliest times and yet could speak to present-day technologies. And yet Annie Elbers didn't um, start out her career in art necessarily with a passion for weaving. Um, can you give us a little bit of background about where she, where she started out? Well, she came from a quite affluent family in Berlin, a, a family that had uh, Jewish roots but had been converted uh, the the whole family had a full scale conversion in the nineteenth century to Protestantism. So, although she had Jewish background, which was never denied, um, like many of the Jews and the prosperous Jews in Berlin, she was uh, baptized in the Protestant Church when she married Joseph Albers, who was a Catholic from Westphalia, the Northwest, the complete other end of Germany. Um, they were married in the Protestant Church in Germany, uh, but she grew up in a very privileged background where she had a governess at home and then for a short while attended a, a high school. She learned to speak English at home and she was always chafing at this idea of uh, being, of spending, I guess, the rest of her life in this kind of environment. She wanted to be an artist. She was certainly encouraged in the pursuit of interest in the arts by her parents. Her father would take her and her sister to the museums in Berlin, which had already had fantastic uh, collections at the, in the early 20th century. She was born in 1899. So this would have been in the teens and 20s, uh, where she was really fascinated by the ethnographical collections, by these unknown, distant um, ancient civilizations that produced what she could see at the time were amazingly intricate, complex, beautiful works. And that, I think, set her uh, her feeling about wanting to be an artist, wanting to also be a creator of similar kinds of, of objects. She didn't really know what kinds of objects these would be. And initially she tried to study painting, and that was not... Uh, completely successful at the time. Women were excluded from fine arts schools in Germany, uh, even if they did have the kind of upbringing she had. She enrolled for a brief period at a applied arts school, the Kunstgewerbeschule in Hamburg, and uh, where they taught women things like embroidery and sort of domestic arts, and she didn't like that. She left there and then heard about this place called the Bauhaus, which in had been established in uh, Weimar in 1919 when she was a teenager. And it just sounded like the kind of school that she would want to go to. It accepted women, which was something quite unusual. As she found out when she got there, women were kind of nudged into doing the more feminine arts. Uh, in her case, in the case of many of the women who went to the Bauhaus, this was weaving, which was considered uh, 
a female pursuit rather than, say, uh, construction or um, metalwork or woodwork. Uh, and at first she was uneasy about this, but she accepted it. And as she said, she learned to know threads, to understand threads, and to work with them. And this experience with weaving changed her life. Um, I think that she discovered that weaving wasn't simply a, a pursuit of making little tray cloths and tablecloths and doilies for the house, but it was actually a very sophisticated technological um, endeavor and that you had to be uh, very focused. You had to have an understanding of mathematics, of calculation, uh, as well as um, involving a skill of using hand your hands. So uh, it, it certainly appealed to her and she could put all of her faculties uh, into this process of weaving. She wrote, later in her life, she wrote uh, what would turn out to be a very seminal text called On Weaving, which you cite in your essay in the book. Um, she, Annie Albers talks about weaving beginning with the event of a thread, which is a very mysterious thing to say. Can you help us understand that a little bit? Well, first, let me speak a bit about her writing. She had and developed a way of writing that was so clear, so crisp, so evocative, using very plain language, nothing fancy or flowery, and yet every sentence that she wrote had a clear meaning and was very intentional. So therefore, this phrase, the event of a thread, what does this mean? I think that in my interpretation, she was taking this very primal, if you like, basic substance, a thread, which could be a thread of string or cotton or any kind of material. And in fact, the earliest weavings, as she knew, were uh, made with, uh, with natural threads or fibers like uh, straw and grasses and so on. And so, but the fact is that this thread, once it entered into this process of weaving, could do miraculous things for her. And uh, so the event of a thread is really everything that happened to that very simple, if you like, element, material element uh, on its life in, uh, in creating a fabric or an, an image, as she did in her work, or in fact a functional uh, a functional surface as she very much advocated the use of fabric and of textiles in architecture. So this thread simply took on this life and that was the event of the thread that she would follow for the rest of her life. And as it turned out, she she didn't stay in Germany throughout her life. She she wound up traveling extensively. She met, as you said, her husband Joseph Albers at the Bauhaus. The two of them wound up traveling to America on an invitation to teach at Black Mountain College in North Carolina, um, the famous short-lived, unfortunately, educational institution there, um, from there to Connecticut. And throughout that period, many trips to Mexico. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the 
effects all of this travel had on her thinking and her art. Sure. So uh, before I get into that, I also wanted to point out that Annie Albers was not simply a weaver. She was an artist. She was a designer. She was a teacher. And as I've already alluded to, she was an author, a writer. So all of these things, aspects of her work come together uh, to make her into the person and artist that we uh, are looking at today. She spent 10 years at the Bauhaus, um, which at the time was uh, the epicenter of newness, if you like, in contemporary art. So the Bauhaus, which was formed in 1919 as a school which would accept all comers, um, which would uh, teach really artists to collaborate in terms of uh, working towards the idea of architecture as being the uh, the goal of the arts. This was the idea that Walter Gropius had when he founded the Bauhaus. And so he created this school, which was multidisciplinary and what we would say today is interdisciplinary, where students were taught woodworking, sculpture, art, painting, um, metalwork. There was also theater department, later photography. So it was a very new idea going against the grain of the fine arts or the so-called Beaux-Arts movement, which taught a very traditional art uh, practice based on the legacy of, you know, Greek sculpture, Greek and Roman art, and that whole Western idea. The Bauhaus really adopted a much more open approach to art and wanted to put artists to work to create a different kind of environment rather than individual works that would um, be displayed in museums or galleries. After all, the patronage of the church, uh, of princes, of kings, which had really supported the arts for generations, did not was no longer existing in the 20th century. It had cha- things had changed, and the Bauhaus artists all understood this. And uh, so... Her introduction to art, although she was familiar with it through all these museums that she she knew from Berlin, was really a new kind of art. It was a new way of making and a new way of um, working, which we could broadly say was uh, experimental. It was throwing out the old ideas, uh, unlearning what had been traditionally taught, and finding a way to create a new art for a new century. Um, And this was her experience for 10 years. And at at the Bauhaus, she not only then learned to weave uh, and became a very skilled weaver, she also absorbed all of these other lessons of theater and woodworking and building and glasswork, which her husband then, they were married in 1925, Joseph Albers, was very much involved in using glass to make uh, architectural windows, um, starting out with something that looked more like stained glass and working into a much more uh, industrial kind of glass uh, 
production where he would take sheets of flash glass and um, have them uh, sandblasted to create very, let's say, modern-looking, very geometrical, very abstract images, uh, which were then applied also in architecture. So she had this wide, for 10 years, she was in, in, inhabiting this very rich, both intellectual, because there were a lot of ideas, new ideas that were coming into the Bauhaus. It wasn't an isolated school. There was a lot of contact with uh, intellectuals, artists, philosophers. Uh, from all People from all disciplines would come and lecture there. Music was a very key uh, element of the Bauhaus theater and so on. So she, she, that was her formative period, this very rich um, exposure to the newest um, experimentation in the arts. From there, um, in 1933, uh, after the Bauhaus had been shut down by the National Socialist, the, the Nazi government, because they uh, feared, of course, new ideas, they feared experimentation, they saw these artists as, be, as being... Um, uh, disruptive, really, to the kind of militaristic state that they were going to be uh, developing. Uh, they shut down the Bauhaus. It was far too revolutionary for them, for the Nazis. And so Joseph and Annie Albers fo found themselves at the beginning of 1933 completely without an intellectual home, without, uh, without studios. They moved uh, from Dessau, where the Bauhaus had had transitioned from Weimar and then to Berlin uh, and they moved into an apartment in Berlin and they really weren't very sure what they were going to do uh, with their lives. They didn't have any opportunities or very many opportunities at least to uh, show their work, to sell their work, to make a living as artists once the school had closed down. And at that moment they received an invitation to come to the United States to set up an art department at a school called Black Mountain College, which was in the mountains of rural western North Carolina near Asheville and had been established by a maverick uh, academic, a man called John Andrew Rice, with a few of his faculty who had rebelled against the control that they had been experienced at a school in Florida where they taught, a school called Rollins College. And Rice had, he was a follower of John Dewey, and he had this idea of setting up a very free, progressive school um, where art would be the center of learning, art being a process of making. And this was very much in line with Dewey's ideas about learning by doing, not as opposed to learning by reading or by thinking. So it was very much opposed to that idea of book learning. And um, Rice felt that it had to be this open sort of Socratic arena where um, all students would be exposed to art and um, other disciplines would be taught, but it would be within this very broad, open context. There would not be exams. There would be no administration. The faculty would run the place together with the students. Um, a very free idea of what a school would be. They were therefore uh, from 1934 until 1949 when they uh, resigned and 
not sure about where they were going to go until Joseph Albers was uh, offered the chair of a new department of design within the art school at Yale. Um, so this is, we can kind of think of this as now 1949, 1950, when he actually assumed this position. This was um, a couple of decades, three decades, after the Bauhaus. So um, Yale, at this point, after the war, 1950, was was wanting to re vitalize the art department, which was still following fairly traditional lines. And so, of course, the ideal person turned out to be Joseph Albers, who had been through the Bauhaus, who had had a tremendous amount experience at Black Mountain College, had by this time become a very revered teacher of art, as well as a uh, an established artist in America. And he was hired then by Yale in the fall of 1950, and the Alberses, after a brief interlude in uh, New ha- in, in New York, um, moved to New Haven. And Albers, who was at that time 62 years old, was hired um, and remained at Yale for another 10 years. So he had a long career both as a teacher and as an artist. Annie had taught at Black Mountain Uh, spent a lot of her time teaching at Black Mountain. And when she came to Yale, she then set up her uh, studio in her home and took on some private students. But that was her period of the greatest productivity. And um, I'll just, I can just outline the sort of a really interesting uh, sort of statistic, if you like, that um, she had made a bunch of weavings at the at the Bauhaus in Germany, most of which were lost during the war, but probably 10 or 12 large pieces and a lot of uh, textiles for industrial production. In the 1930s, she produced two weavings, two, uh, and when I say weavings, I'm talking about standalone objects that were viewed as art, which she did all along alongside a separate career as a textile designer, a designer of textiles for industry, uh, sometimes handwoven herself, but often she produced she would produce samples which would then be developed by uh, larger factories or larger weaving workshops uh, in you know tr- quantities for uh, architectural or industrial um, use. Uh, In the 40s, so she made two works in the 30s. In the 40s, she made five works. In the 1950s, she made 26 works. And in the 60s, she produced 12 works. That's a total of 45. So her production, these works, I I think that can give a sort of idea of what a labor-intensive pursuit weaving is. And so for Annie, the point I want to make is that the 1950s, her years in New Haven and her first decade in New Haven was the most productive part of her life in terms of producing weavings. Um, we can go back and talk about their travels if that's something that you'd like to talk about. Yeah, now. I think uh, particularly their their um, exploration of and um, 
artistic development that resulted from their travels in Latin America, both of them, um, was a major part of their careers. So, yes, exactly. And uh, it's a part of their careers that's being explored more and more today and being found to have more and more uh, significance for both of them. So, um, as I'd mentioned earlier, Annie was very much engaged with uh, ancient weaving, but not, but with a particular kind of production. So, we say weaving is the most, the earliest art, the earliest craft, but we could talk about China or we could talk about uh, ancient uh, Greece and Rome or any part of the world. But what particularly grasped her was the weavings made by the Andean weavers in countries that border on the Andes, mostly Peru, but also Guatemala, um, Bolivia, all of that region. And these were the weavings that she, the textiles, I should say, that she saw, had seen, and had really captured her imagination. Uh, And there was a a real interest in the production of early civilizations at the Bauhaus. But these were these incredibly complex uh, patterns, uh, techniques, structures, all of which she, once she had learnt to weave herself, she realized how incredibly sophisticated and complicated these works were. And what really fascinated her was that the this idea of these were uh, so-called primitive, as she said, cultures, but they were creating without being liter- having a literary tradition, without really being able to write uh, or read, they were using textiles as their means of communication, and they were able to create these really complex works without being tutored in mathematics or in numbers or uh, any of the what what were considered sort of the disciplines of 20th century uh, education and even going back a little bit earlier than that, of course. And so this fascinated her. How had these people learnt? How had these people developed their their uh, ability to make these incredibly complex uh, and uh, difficult and difficult to analyze um, weavings? So she'd been fascinated by this. And when she got to America, she was felt herself to be closer to these cultures um, than she had been, obviously, in Europe. Uh, So as soon as uh, she and Joseph had an opportunity to leave Black Mountain, she planned that they would go to Mexico. Um, She was not that familiar with the cultures of Mexico. She had been looking further south, but Mexico was at least halfway to uh, South America, and it it could be reached by car quite easily from Asheville. Uh, They would drive. They would take a seven-hour drive through Texas and across the border into Mexico. And so it was something that was available to them and accessible to them. When they got to Mexico, uh, and this was their first trip was in December of 1935, they were completely astonished by the, the range, the beauty of the country, and also by not only the textile art, but um, 
by the architecture of the ancient Mayan, Zapotec, uh, and other cultures that they encountered first in Mexico City and then later further south in uh, Oaxaca. Uh, this was a period of um, national consciousness in Mexico where um, after the uh, revolution of the 30s, the Mexicans were, in fact, uncovering their ancient cultures. They were becoming very conscious of uh, their history. And so um, there was a large-scale, starting in 1931, a large-scale um, excavation of former uh, civilizations, of the works of former civilizations, so that, uh, for instance, at Monte Alban, which today has been completely Uncovered and uh, is available to tourist buses and uh, quite commercialized. When they arrived there in 1935, the stonework of the temples and the buildings on that site of Monte Alban, which is a hilltop site outside of Oaxaca, was starting to be dug out of the earth. And it's, it's quite remarkable how, and, and we can see this, uh, because Joseph Albers, who was also uh, very much a photographer, uh, recorded their visits in uh, hundreds of photographs. He was His photography of Mexico is prolific. And you can actually see as they traveled there over the years, the sites being gradually revealed to them, more and more of these buildings being uncovered, uh, they were really archaeological digs at the time. They were not tourist attractions. Um, and this to them, seeing this civilization coming out of the earth and coming out in forms that were so precise geometrically that it totally, uh, they totally identified with this, the abstraction of these buildings. Uh, and so as they uh, are um, known to have said to each other when they uh, aren't seeing some of these objects, we are not alone. This is, this is what we're doing. They could completely bring that past into their present as abstract artists and completely identify with the aesthetic uh, values that, as they saw it, of these uh, cultures that were hundreds of years old. And so this completely uh, um, fascinated them and brought them back to Mexico time after time. And um, whenever they had sabbaticals from Black Mountain College, they would travel to Mexico for months at a time and spend time there revisiting, uh, re-photographing uh, these sites, finding new things, and also then uh doing their own work, which uh, can be traced back to the connections with these these ancient cultures. I, I just It must have been a wild experience for them, almost mystical, to be at the moment of discovery and feeling like they had this common aesthetic vision with people who'd lived so long ago. Yes, I think it was sort of, well, Joseph actually expressed it as being Breathtaking. So their their education, of course, had been Western. It had been where the roots of their uh, their civilization in Germany in the 
late 19th, early 20th century, was traced back to Greece and Rome. So for them, the Acropolis, for instance, was the epitome of architectural creation, beauty, the foundations of uh, modernity, if you like. And, of course, we know that so many, through neoclassicism and the development of great buildings, they were used to seeing buildings with classical columns, with pediments, with steps up to to the entrances, and this was, you know, repeated over and over again through the uh, through the Renaissance, all of these classical revivals in Europe. Um, here, they saw something completely different arriving in Latin America. It was a, it was another another whole view of the world, which to them was uh, just a complete opposition, if you like, to the classical world, the European or the Western classical world. Here was a different kind of classicism. You could even call it a, a classic um, abstraction. And so I think this was having grown up with that Western idea behind them, they were, they, they identified more with seeing uh, that what they, to a large extent, had been doing at the Bauhaus in certain ways, uh, more geometric work, work that was abstracted, that didn't have all these illusions, these classical illusions, that hundreds of years ago there were artists in uh, Latin America and in Mexico who'd been doing these very same things. So they didn't, they didn't look at it. They, they looked at it in, admittedly in a very formalistic way. They didn't they realized that they did not necessarily need to understand the historical context of those works, but they could see that the forms of the architects who had created these uh, temples or pyramids in Latin America was really based on the, the kind of formal abstractions that they were working with in their own art. And how do we see um, Ani's weaving, either or both her um, the weaving that she did as artwork and the weaving that she did for commercial purposes change as she gained more and more exposure to the Latin American art? Yes, well, that's a really interesting question. Um, her Bauhaus weavings had been quite geometrical. Uh, less decorative, can I say, than some of the other weavers in the workshop, less, um, very much more formalized. So um, some of the, she was really following the grid of the loom, which, you know, weaving is based on threads, vertical threads going and running vertically, being crossed by horizontal threads, so it's very much a grid system. And she was very much following that grid system in a very um, creative way. When she started looking at the um, and studying more of the uh, Andean art particularly, what she found was the incredible um, inventiveness that these artists had with this grid 
in other words, intervening in the grid to twist threads, to turn them around each other. She, there was a, there's a, um, a form of weaving called Leno weave or gauze weave that she uh, discovered in Andean art where uh, threads are the horizontal and vertical threads of the loom are, can be manipulated by hand can be twisted and turned and overlapped. And uh, she she just loved that because that really meant that you were no longer um, bound by the grid system. So she developed in her own ways after studying the work of the uh, Latin American artists, ways of introducing these things into her own work. Both Joseph and Annie Albers were particularly uh, astonished by the the richness of the color, and of course, it was it was the color and the clim- the atmosphere. So the bright skies, the blue skies, the abundance of sunshine, and how those enhanced the colors. And so she started introducing uh, many more very bright colors into her her weavings. Um, she had been taught at the Bauhaus that structure in textiles was very important and she had experimented with different kinds of structures in the Bauhaus but suddenly this new art that she this new old art let's say um, was presented her with even more um, complicated and uh, fascinating structures and at one point she wrote about how she had discovered uh, a very simple invention which was the backstrap the backstrap loom which was a loom invented by uh, peasant populations in Mexico she found them where uh, the loom the body actually became part of the loom so the uh, the loom, the 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 warp threads were attached to a rod, and then the other end was attached around the waist of the weaver who sat on the ground, and then interwove the horizontal threads with this loom that was um, the rod was attached at one end to a tree, and then the other end to the body. So the body became an in- integral part of this weaving. She loved this idea, and she found it really difficult. She went several times, as she wrote to friends, she had to go several times back to this village to be instructed by a uh, a weaver, a local weaver, who Annie was very aware, could neither read nor write, but had nevertheless invented this incredible tool um, and uh, she said she found it really what what fascinated her was that that you didn't need to be educated to create something like this so experiment to her was again outside of something that you learnt it by making it by doing it by observing somebody who could do the same thing and uh, she thought this was a wonderful thing to bring back to her students at Black Mountain College which she did and there are some really wonderful photographs of the Black Mountain College students sitting outside um, and weaving on their backstrap looms. Uh, Again I think this is 
the other aspect of that was that this was something that you did outside. You didn't need to be in a factory or in a studio. You could weave anywhere. And uh, it was so it was really in certain ways almost tied to to nature as well. And that was something that she also loved and learned from and brought back and taught to her students. Did she create any of her own artworks using this kind of loom? Or do we not know? No, she didn't actually create finished works using the loom. But again, it was part of this experimentation, part of this flexibility. And um, I would like to think that it also also awakened her to the, the real sort of bodily functions of weaving, the bodily connection or the weaving being this embodied art where you are really um, involved in making art uh, with your body. And, of course, one could look to, you know, an artist like Jackson Pollock, who, of course, embodied his art in another kind of a way by throwing his paint onto a canvas. And I think that this was probably something that fascinated her as well. But uh, I, I think it's quite an important aspect of what weaving was to her. Well, it was certainly an extraordinary life. She was an extraordinary artist. And everything that we've talked about and more is addressed in the fantastic essays in the book. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about any of the other essays in particular. Well, I'd I'd just like to say that um, the book really um, draws on the expertise of a large number of writers, including, of course, the exhibition curators and uh, Bryony Fur, Maria Müller from Germany and Anne Coxon of Tate Modern. Um, and they have uh, c- contrived to uh, cover in quite brief but very clear and very deep uh, series of essays all of the aspects, I would say, of Annie's work. So um, it starts with a very succinct history of uh, the Bauhaus by Magdalena Droste, who is a the doyen, let's say, of Bauhaus scholars. Um, it goes on to look to um, look at weaving in connection with architecture. Architecture being another aspect that we haven't talked about, but which was very important to Annie because she felt that. Uh, building textiles was in many ways similar to building structures and that that textiles should have a greater role in architecture. Um, It it discusses her teaching and the experimental methods that she used at Black Mountain College and the importance of process and of making that she accentuated in her teaching at Black Mountain. It then looks at the Latin American experience and um, what the author of a chapter called Discovering Monte Alban, uh, Maria Minera, talks about as the semantic richness of Latin American, of the Mexican um, textiles. Um, It also looks at another aspect of Joseph and Annie's experience in Mexico was their collecting of Latin American objects, figures, clay figures, and also textiles. So that is investigated. It uh, goes on to describe her landmark 1949 uh, exhibition 
at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, which was curated by Philip Johnson. Um, it uh, it talks about her religious commissions. She was commissioned to do works for uh, several um, Reform Jewish temples in the 60s and uh, comes to an end with a chapter on her uh, the period in her life where she actually stopped her weaving practice um, and went into printmaking, which was a whole new career for her in her mid-60s, uh, described by Nicholas Fox Weber. And then finally it ends with a, a short discussion of her legacy and contemporary artists who have followed, if you like, in her footsteps or been inspired by her. So really in a quite um, compact volume, it covers in very rich essays uh, this whole trajectory of her her career. And also um, it has the most wonderful illustrations. There are many, many uh, detailed photographs, um, illustrations of her weavings, of other weavings, um, where you can really almost count the threads. They are so crisp and beautiful. The color is perfect. It's wonderfully produced. It's beautifully conceived. And um, for those people who are not able to see the exhibition, um, it's more of a companion to the exhibition than an actual catalog. So it will be it stands alone as a text on its own, as a most comprehensive, wonderful, uh, not only introduction, but actually exploration of Annie Albers's work. It absolutely is. And thank you so much for coming to talk to us about it today. Well, thank you, Jessica. It's been a pleasure. The book, Annie Albers, is available in bookstores, through online vendors, and through YaleBooks.com. Please join us there to follow our podcast series and learn more about our books and authors.